Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. According to statistics, the vast majority of employment law cases settle before trial. Statistics also show that the average cost to defend a case is around $160,000, and the average time to resolve a case is almost one year. And these statistics are from before COVID, so with the backup in the courts, the time frame is likely longer, and the cost may be higher as well. Why do I bring this up? Well, if you get sued for an employment claim, the most likely outcome is settlement. But many business people don't really understand the ins and outs of settlement, so that's what I'm going to talk about in this episode. First off, I will say that my personal experience in employment law is consistent with the statistics I mentioned. Most cases settle. Given the cost and distraction caused by employment law claims, this is usually a good thing. However, I do continue to run into the client who is adamant that they did nothing wrong and will fight claims no matter what. I'm sympathetic to that position, but I also think you owe it to yourself and your business to seriously consider the business case for settlement before deciding on a broad strategy. I've seen a number of situations over the years when an employer starts off adamant about not settling the case, but as time goes by and expenses go up, they often regret not getting out of the case earlier. It's something to think about. And if your employment attorney is only a cheerleader for litigation without ever mentioning settlement options, I'd consider looking elsewhere for counsel. I should also mention that I don't believe there is a one-size-fits-all approach to the issue of settlement. It really takes a case-by-case, hands-on management and analysis. Some businesses develop a reputation when it comes to settlement. I can think of one large U.S. retailer that had the reputation of never settling cases, but over time they got beat up pretty good and eventually went in the other direction. On the other side, I've encountered some extremely risk-averse companies that settle every case and eventually get the reputation of being a soft touch and everyone sues them for every little thing. The bottom line is that each case needs to be evaluated on its merits when it comes to settlement strategy. Certain cases need to be settled, and others may be fought if a business chooses to do that. Having said that, let's consider a few key points about settlement. Point number one, when to settle. I've been asked a number of times by clients when we can settle a case. There are not really any rules about when you can settle. You can settle any time the parties can reach an agreement. It can be on day one of the case, or it can be on the courthouse steps right before a trial starts. The real question to ask is when should you settle, and like most questions in the legal world, the answer is it depends. For employers, there is always an argument for settling early because the longer a case goes on, the more money you will spend. So if you will ultimately settle anyway, it makes sense in many cases to minimize the damage by doing it early. However, this is not always possible. Often the other side is not willing to settle for an acceptable amount early in the case. Sometimes you need to let the case develop a bit before the parties are ready to compromise. There are also reasons why the employer may want to wait on settlement. I've had many cases where financial reporting deadlines, such as quarter or fiscal year ends, may play a role in delaying settlement, and there are also cash flow issues at times. By the same token, circumstances may dictate a quick settlement, even above what the case is worth. I've seen this happen in acquisition scenarios, where a company wants to clear away all pending litigation before a sale. All of this means that the question of when to settle is going to vary from case to case 
and from the employer's perspective, factors unrelated to the case may play an important role in the decision-making. Point number two, how to settle. The usual way a settlement is reached is the attorneys for the parties communicate with one another and their clients and facilitate a negotiation process. Again, there are very few formal rules to follow. Once the discussion starts, the parties usually go back and forth, getting closer to common ground until someone goes as far as they will and settlement either happens or it doesn't. Often the discussion is tabled for a period and the parties revisit the issue later in the case. Again, there is no specific time frame for the discussion, with a couple of possible exceptions. First, many courts hold mandatory settlement conferences, although they're not always called that, and the procedures vary from court to court. In some jurisdictions, the judge assigned to the case holds a settlement conference at some point. Most judges will do this at any time if the parties request it, but they also may have it cooked into their court procedures to ensure that it happens. In some courts, the judge assigned to the case does not handle the settlement conference, but has another judge do it. It's also worth mentioning that judges are often very aggressive with the parties about settling and specific issues in the case. It is unwise to simply show up at one of these conferences without having prepared. Parties should have reviewed the case facts and issues thoroughly with counsel and should have some amount of settlement authority going in, even if it's relatively small. Another feature of these conferences is that someone with the authority to settle the case needs to be present. The judge will not be happy if you show up and need to make a call to check with someone else every time a move is made. The second instance where the settlement discussion has more structure is if the parties agree to go to mediation. Mediation is a process where the parties hire a neutral third party to facilitate a settlement negotiation. Mediators are often attorneys or retired judges, but they don't necessarily have to have a legal background. Mediators are trained in negotiation and communication skills and can be very effective in helping the parties reach a settlement. I'm a huge fan of mediation and plan to do another episode on the topic in the near future. One final note. Even courts that don't have mandatory settlement conferences may require mediation or at least make it available and encourage it. Point number three, settlement versus severance. I encounter a lot of confusion over the difference between settlement and severance. The main difference is that a settlement resolves an existing claim or threatened claim, while a severance is usually preemptive. To be clear, I'm talking about a scenario where an employer terminates an employee or group of employees and offers them severance in return for signing a release. I'm not talking about cases where severance is paid according to a prearranged plan, like those that some higher-level executives participate in. In most cases, severance is a preemptive move with two motivations, the desire to assist employees who are being let go and the desire to preemptively eliminate potential claims before they are threatened or asserted. From time to time, I still encounter employers who want to offer severance without asking employees to sign a release. I usually discourage this because severance is a pretty effective means of avoiding litigation, so why not ask for a release? It is important to bear in mind that absent a severance plan or program or some kind of contractual obligation, employers are not required to offer anything. Even when they do offer severance, there is not a particular formula that has to be used to determine the amount offered. I still get asked frequently how much should be offered, and I always say the same thing, just enough to get the employee to sign the release and not a penny more. That's a lawyerly and admittedly irritating answer, but it underscores the point. 
that there is a lot of discretion in this area. Many employers do use the formula of one week of pay per year of service, often with a cap, uh, but again, this is not required. So should you offer severance? Well, there are a lot of factors to consider, including, is the termination high risk for litigation for some reason? Do you want to help the employee or employees, and can you? What have you done for other employees? Yes, disparate severance offers have been the basis for discrimination claims, so it must be considered. As with the settlement question, there are a lot of unrelated factors that can impact the severance decision. For example, in an acquisition scenario where groups of employees are no longer needed, there are often pretty generous severance packages because there's a lot of money set aside in the deal. However, when a business is just trying to stay viable by cutting staff, there may not be much money available to pay anything. The takeaway is that there are a lot of fact-specific issues to consider with the severance question. Point number four, the Older Workers Benefit Protection Act, or the OWBPA. I cannot talk about settlement without touching on this topic. If you are settling with or offering severance to an employee who is over 40 years old and you want them to release their federal age discrimination claims, you have to follow the requirements of the OWBPA. These are specific things that must be included in settlement or severance agreements in order for the waivers to be effective. The requirements include the waiver must be in writing and be understandable. The waiver must specifically refer to the ADEA rights or claims. The employee may not waive rights or claims that may arise in the future. The waiver must be in exchange for valuable consideration, that is, more than the employee is otherwise entitled to receive. The waiver must advise the individual in writing to consult with an attorney before signing the waiver. And the waiver must provide the individual with at least 21 days to consider the agreement and at least seven days to revoke the agreement after signing it. Waivers in the context of a reduction in force have additional requirements. Initially, the requirements I just mentioned apply with one modification. When a severance program is being offered in return for a release to a group or class of employees, each individual who's over 40 must be given a period of at least 45 days, as opposed to 21 days in the individual context, within which to consider the agreement. Also, the employer must provide the over 40 employees with the job titles and ages of those individuals who are being offered the severance and those who are keeping their employment. This is so the over 40 employees can determine if there is age discrimination going on. By the way, all of these agreements are set out in the OWBPA. They are not optional. Allow me to digress for a moment. I think that no matter what your legal specialty, you get a fair number of requests for free advice from friends and relatives. But I've always suspected that with the possible exception of divorce attorneys, labor and employment attorneys get the most. And in my experience, most of them relate to severance packages. All of this is a long way of saying that in addition to all of the severance packages I've handled for clients, I've looked at a lot of other ones as well. And I'm amazed at how often even very large companies do not properly follow the OWBPA. So the two takeaways are this. Number one, the OWBPA is not optional. And number two, if you are not familiar with how to comply with the OWBPA, get help or you risk having waivers that can be challenged. Point number five, when not to settle. My final point on this topic is when not to settle a case. 
I suggested earlier that businesses need to consider the option of settlement, but I am not suggesting that all cases should automatically be settled. The number one reason not to settle a case is because you don't want to settle. That's a legitimate reason. You have the right to fight a case if you choose to do that. Just make sure you go in with your eyes open about the costs and the risks. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.